We'll be reading in chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, but begin just before in verse 13 of chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew their trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was, rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day... They rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, 
lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is God's word. Please be seated. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing account of you intervening in history and providing for your people. It's a famous account. It is, it's awe-inspiring. And yet, Father, you have included in your word also because you want us to learn and grow from it. So help us with that this morning by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joshua 6 lends us another opportunity this week to learn about the role of obedience in the Christian life. By way of review, last week in Joshua 5, one of the things we learned about obedience is that it usually begins as an inefficient inconvenience. Not only does God ask us to do things that when we start walking with him, it leaves us scratching our heads, what's going on here? But at first, we don't often want to do those things. Uh, In fact, they might even be kind of painful I was granted access this last Thursday to a note written by a second grader to her teacher. Uh, I've hidden the names to protect the innocent. But it reads this way. Dear Mrs. F. M., I'm assuming Mary, maybe Melody, has a condition that makes it so that when she does homework, it slowly kills her. Please do not send any more homework. Signed, Mrs. Mom. All right, and by the way, sign is misspelled. I love that. Now, look, this is not too dissimilar to our feelings about obedience. When we begin to obey, God has us learn stuff in the Bible that he wants us to take home and work. Right, work into our lives. And we say, okay, God, hey, look, I'll do it, but just understand that every time I do it, Part of me dies inside. 
But what we learn as we turn from Joshua 5 to Joshua 6 is that the longer we obey, the more obedience turns from an inefficient inconvenience to an inefficient joy. We still might scratch our heads, we still might wonder why, but there's joy in it. So we're going to learn three things this morning about obedience. Number one, we're going to learn that there are two types of commands to obey. Number two, that as you change, so the obedience experience changes. And finally, we're going to learn how the obedience experience begins to change. So first, two types of commands to obey we learn here in Joshua 5 and 6. First, you have the ones that the Holy Spirit wrote down for us. God, the Holy Spirit, wrote down for us. And two, the ones the Holy Spirit speaks to us. So the first and most assuredly from God are commands we find in the Bible. And and the second, though, are these personalized commands impressed upon us by the Holy Spirit through through prayer, other people, the church, uh, circumstances. They're usually something that while new, different, unique, in appearance and form, they're totally representative of God's plan and His character. So they're not just out there and weird, representative of who God is. And what's pretty fantacular is we see both kinds of commands on display here in chapters 5 and 6 of Joshua. It's pretty cool. So in Joshua 5, God gives commands written down. Main, plain, obvious commands that have already been revealed through his word. That's been written down. So for instance, if you just kind of look briefly, reflect back in Joshua 5 and verses 2 through 7, God tells his people to get circumcised because they haven't yet been. It's not a new or flashy command, but one already written down in his word. We see this, if you look back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 8 through 10, we read this, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. In other words, this land that they're now in. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It's already written down years earlier. And while they're healing up, from circumstance, while well, they're healing up from using rocks in their nether regions, <laughs> which was quite awkward and painful, God's people obey an old command to celebrate the Passover feast, chapter 5, verse 10. We read that as well. Again, though, that was already written down. We see that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. The Passover shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So hopefully you see what I'm saying here. They're obeying things God has already written down. But then we get to Joshua 6 where God presently speaks a command to them. A personalized, a unique command. Instead of attacking a city by efficient or at least normal means, you know, stone swords and punches to the gut, 
That's how people attack cities. God commands his people to do something new and unheard of. March around the city seven times around its walls. Raise a giant shout. And these massive city walls would crumble before their eyes. So which sounds more exciting to you? Circumcision followed by Passover? Or marching and playing music with friends until a miracle happens? But the old, the written down, the daily command comes first. And there's a reason for that. That is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, rarely commands the unexpected and new without prior obedience to the obvious and old. Let me say that one more time. God the Holy Spirit rarely commands the unexpected and new without prior obedience to the obvious and to the old. In the New Testament, Jesus tells such a story to make such a point, the moral of which is this, to him who is faithful in in little things, God will then entrust big things. So, so, so often when we say, man, I want to know God's will for my life, what are we really saying? We want the grand purpose, the powerful experience maybe of, of God speaking through me directly into a stranger's problem. The big moments, the sweeping revival, something larger that will excite and captivate my heart. But God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. So when someone says to me, hey, you know, I mean, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. The first response I have is, hey, have you considered something like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, which says, be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, wait for it, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What happened to me moving to the inner city and serving people in this grand purpose? No, be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. Or what about 1 Thessalonians 4.3? This is God's will for you, that you be sanctified. His will for you is that you become more like Jesus. That's where God calls us to start. Start with what God has asked of you on paper. To love your neighbor. Uh, to look for opportunities to share the good news and the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Married men, to self-sacrificially lead your wife and family, looking out for their good. Married women, to demonstrate to your respect to your husband in all things and when inconvenient. Single people, to remain innocent of evil and to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. All people, to use the gift God has entrusted to you to serve his body, the church. These are the main and plain things written down for us. Start here, and soon you'll find yourself caught up, marching around cities and taking down walls in Jesus' name. Something else we learned about obedience here in chapters 5 and 6. That is this, that as you change... So does the obedience experience. You know, a life of trusting and following Jesus is, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. Right? That sounds, that sounds like you need some granola bars and Gatorade, right, for this journey. And you do. A long obedience in the same direction. And in the beginning, there is inconvenience. 
as we saw in Joshua 5. It didn't make sense. When God's enemies were, were vulnerable and primed for defeat, God instead has his people get circumcised and celebrate an old tradition. And adult circumcision was certainly not something they wanted to do. But as they trust and obey, trust and obey, they change. And as they do, obedience changes from just being inconvenient to being full of joy. And same thing for us, guys. As you obey and you begin to change, you become to become more like Jesus, the obedience experience changes from inconvenience to joy. God's intention is this, for obedience to itself be a joy. Right now we think about, we talked about this last week, we think about being delivered by God through Jesus. It's a joy. It's grace to us. We think about the blessings that come, that flow out from obedience being a joy and a grace. We don't often think of obedience being grace, but it is. It is a joy. It is the third grace. When it comes to being obedient, for instance, in your marriage, God says to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be infatuated with her love. Enjoy all that she has to offer. And friends, the Bible ain't shy about explicitly detailing all that she has to offer. I have to keep it a PG this morning, but the Bible does not. In fact, the New Testament advocates engaging in in consistent sexual enjoyment in a marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 7.5. When it comes to the, the discipline and the obedience of giving back to God all of he's given to us, that discipline of of what we call tithing, God loves a cheerful giver. And you see this, people who find giving back to God, it's a rush. You trust him and you see him work through it and it becomes a joy. These are just a couple examples, but that's what we have here. As we move from Joshua 5 to 6, we have obedience that's characterized by inconvenience to chapter 6, obedience that's characterized by joy marching around the city with friends to just upbeat, blaring music. It's like a cleaner version of our beloved Bata Banu festival. <laughs> right? Most, you know, in Joshua, they kept their clothes mostly on. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> but it's that kind of joy. It's that kind of joy. In fact, we have three different Hebrew terms used here for horns and trumpets. Three different terms suggesting the diversity, even melody of sound. There are all these different kinds of horns and trumpets being played. And while two out of the three horns were usually used for military signaling, the author of Joshua makes it clear these trumpets are not being used for signaling here. Because we hear it three times in just five verses that the trumpets blew, what? Continually. Not in increments to signal something, but they're continually blowing in a cacophony of sound. And now to get my point across, think about this. Uh, If you were called to do a 7K God walk with friends, would you rather obey to this sound? Okay. Or would you rather obey to this sound? Right? Come on. What would you rather do? Everybody. Oh, win the seats. All right. 
it could get ugly fast if I start singing. What would you rather do? I mean, that, that's what it's like here in Joshua 6. God's blowing trumpets, marching around with friends. So it is when you respond to what Jesus has done for you with obedience. Take heart, because joy will come in the doing it. And I know you might say, man, well, that's easy for you to say, Ryan. For me, reading the Bible and talking with God requires a just painstaking, concerted effort. Just to sit down, to turn off my TV, to, to put down the newspaper to do it. Or serving clearly disadvantaged members of our society or, or serving subtly disadvantaged members of our workplace. It's a chore for me. Saying no to unhealthy but comfortable relationships and yes to biblical but initially awkward relationships is pretty unrealistic for me to follow through in. What about believing and deciding that I'm going to get my highest pleasures in Christ and not from the world? Sounds good in church, but hey man, I just know how I get by Thursday, by Friday, by Saturday. And so I, I need, I need confirmation. I need assurance that the inconvenience of obedience as it now stands will turn to joy. I need some assurance. And that's exactly what I plan to serve up because it's the last thing we learn about obedience here in chapters 5 and 6 of Joshua. We learn how the obedience experience changes. And the key is this, that obedience turns to joy as it turns to Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Obedience turns to joy as it turns to Jesus. And you might respond, well, wait a minute. How in the tarnation do you get Jesus here in Joshua? I mean, we are, we're way back here in the Old Testament. But friends, that is the beauty of reading the Bible. All of the Bible, including the Old Testament, points to Jesus. I'm going to show you how here, how this section of the Bible points to Jesus. Look with me in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him. You can imagine him walking up to this guy. Oh my, what's going on here? He went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. This is one of the great moments in all of the Bible, one of the great responses. Joshua, outside the walls of Jericho, ready to do battle, sees this daunting figure, daunting, mysterious, and he wants to know, Hey man, whose side are you on? Ours are our enemies. And one of the great responses, the guy just says, no. <laughs> what? Is there like a third army I'm not sure about? And the reason I think he responds this way is that this figure wishes to totally explode Joshua's categories for who or for what will help in this situation. Joshua's thinking it's got to be someone for us or someone against us. And this man wants to say, no, you don't get it. You don't get who you're standing in front of. 
the commander of an army of hosts, an army that, while for God's people, is no earthly army. So who is it, then, that has come to shoulder the weight of obedience that Joshua's about to live out? Well, it's not Yahweh, it's not simply a man, and it's not an angel. I'm going to tell you why. It can't be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God we're reading about here, uh, mostly through Joshua. It can't be Yahweh because he is invisible, as we read in Colossians 1.15 or 1 Timothy 1.17. He is spirit, as Jesus himself says in John 4.24. So when God sort of shows up in the Old Testament, Yahweh shows up in the Old Testament, what we call a theophany, it's through these sort of ethereal things, like a wind-like whisper or, or fire in a bush that doesn't burn. can't be Yahweh. He's invisible. He's spirit. But it also can't be a man, because this figure doesn't tell Joshua to get up from his, his worshiping position. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in this town called Lystra, we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas being identified as God. Someone mistakes them for gods and begins to worship them. Paul and Barnabas immediately tell them, hey, stop what you're doing. Look, we are just human beings. Get up from the ground. Don't worship us. So it can't be a, simply a man. It also can't be an angel. For the same reason, this figure doesn't tell Joshua to get up from the worshiping position. Revelation 22 the Apostle John starts to worship this just immaculate figure. But it's an angel. And so the angel says, as he begins to worship and bow down to him, look, man, get up, bro. I'm a servant just like you. But there is someone who shows up in the Bible who is worshipped. By Peter on a boat, for example. Who is worshipped and appears as a man And while he's famous for first showing up in the Gospel of Matthew, he makes these cameos in the Old Testament. He makes these little cameos, his appearances. Like in Genesis 31 and 32, when when the Bible says that Jacob actually wrestles with God and grabs a hold of him, and he doesn't let go. Wait a minute, how do you grab a hold of God, of God's spirit? Hmm. And there are other places like this in the Old Testament where this figure shows up that's, that's man-like, but clearly divine. Well, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 10 that this divine man was actually with the Israelites during the Exodus. So he was with this generation's parents as they walked through the desert. And he shows up here as a commander to the peoples, as Isaiah 55.4 prophesied about Jesus. Jesus shows up between obedience by way of circumcision, Passover, and the next act of obedience by way of marching and music. Right in between these moments. And that's, by the way, exactly what Jesus said he would do when his people obey. That he would show up to do it with you. Listen to, the, listen to John 14 here. 
We're going to read verses 15 through 23. Listen to the pattern of what Jesus says as people obey. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, capital H, helper, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day you will know I'm in the Father, you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Do you see the pattern here? Three places. Obey, and I'm going to send God as a capital H helper into your life. Uh, Obey, and I will show myself to you. I will reveal more of me to you. Obey, I'm going to go further. I'll just build a cozy little three-bedroom condo in you so I can be with you 24-7 to empower you to obey. It's amazing. Just as God's people respond to his deliverance by obeying the old, the archaic, the inconvenient, and Jesus shows up for battle. So also, as you obey at what first seems archaic, what seems old, what seems inconvenient, Jesus shows up for the battle. And there's great joy. Joy as he's revealing himself to you. Joy because... You know that every effort you make, every obedience you make is multiplied by 100 because Jesus is there with you. Joy because in the lowliest and dullest places of obedience, he says, now I have come. Francis of Assisi, a.k.a. St. Francis, was one of my heroes of history. In 1205 AD, this guy Francis sensed God's spirit telling him to rebuild the wasted church. And uncertain of this message's meaning, Francis began by reconstructing the church in nearby San Damian in Italy and ministering the good news of Jesus to the outcasts of society. And he pretty much just went on to do that for the rest of his life. No human being this side of Jesus that I've read about or talked to seems to have experienced more genuine joy than this man Francis. And by the way, you've seen him, you may not know it, but you have seen him in gardens and backyards, all right, because he is often the garage sale quality, stone-like monk statue, right, with birds all around. You've seen this, like, just sort of sitting next to the lilacs, you know, or overgrowing next to a fountain, you're like, well, who's that monk? Who's that guy in robes with birds? That's St. Francis. But that's supposed to depict Francis, because when he couldn't preach Jesus Jesus' good news to people, he'd preach it to birds. Apparently they loved him for it. That's how happy and joyful he was. But that joy for Francis wasn't otherworldly. Neither was doing what Jesus told him. Sort of this being on cloud nine all the time. His favorite verse in the Bible came from Matthew 11. Where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And he concludes, and this was Francis' favorite part, by saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Francis encouraged himself daily with those final words because an image would come to his mind of an easy yoke of obedience, an easy yoke of obedience because the ox pulling next to him was Jesus himself. As he was going to love people, to care for people, to do what God had called him to do, that that ox next to him was Jesus. And I love how here in Joshua, Joshua's being asked to obey through battle. And so Jesus shows up with a sword, right, as a commander. He doesn't show up as a lamb of God. He shows up with a sword because that's how Joshua was called to obey. The yoke of obedience, friends, for us is light because Jesus shows up to shoulder exactly what he asks you to do. As you pick up your Bible and read, he's a rabbi and teacher. As you begin to talk with him throughout the day, he appears as a friend. As you serve the least, whether in society or at your office, he shows up to remind you that you're serving him. As you say no to an unhealthy relationship and yes to an initially awkward but biblical one, he is healing you every step of the way as the great physician. As you believe and decide to derive your highest pleasure and satisfy your greatest passions in Christ uh, on Sunday and into Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Jesus shows up to ravish you with pleasure as your greatest lover and lure you as your richest treasure. Let's pray. God, thank you for helping us learn here in Joshua 5 and 6 how we might be able to respond to what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We show that we love you, as Jesus said in John 14, by obeying your commandments. You call us to respond by trusting and obeying you. And you show us how here, and you show us also how obedience goes from being inconvenient to over time, being joyful. Why? Because you show up. You show up to shoulder obedience with us in exactly the way and exactly the form we need it because that's what you've called us to. So I pray for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I pray for those who maybe not know Jesus but are thinking, man, it sounds like a chore to follow Jesus. It is not because you have a divine man who shows up with you every day to live out what he's called you to do. Please encourage us, Lord, with that truth this week as we step out in obedience as a response to what you've done for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, who is with us. Amen.